Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. We're very pleased today to have Raphael Medoff on the show to talk about his new book, The Jews Should Keep Quiet, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, and the Holocaust. Raphael Medoff is a professor of Jewish history and the founding director of the David Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies, based in Washington, D.C., which focuses on issues related to the American response to the Holocaust. Raphael Medoff, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Renee. Thank you for having me. Before we start talking about your book, tell us about the institute you founded, the David S. Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies. What's its mission, and why did you name it after David Wyman? Well, Professor Wyman um, was the author of the definitive work in our field, the the standard, really, by which all their scholarship in the field of America's response to the Holocaust is judged. His 1984 book, The Abandonment of the Jews, uh, was a bestseller and um, and profoundly shaped uh, scholarship in this area. So the David Wyman Institute was established by myself and other uh, younger colleagues of Professor Wyman's uh, 17 years ago in order to carry on Professor Wyman's work, that is to research, publish, and teach about various aspects of how Americans responded to Nazism in the 1930s and to the Holocaust uh, itself in the 1940s. Professor Wyman, who taught at the University of Massachusetts Amherst his entire career, was a Harvard-trained historian and a Christian, um, a fact which I think surprised many people when they read The Abandonment of the Jews. The assumption back in those days was uh, only Jewish uh, scholars would be interested in this subject. Uh, So that was an advantage that Professor Wyman had is that he came to the subject um, as an as an outside observer, not someone who had any particular agenda or affiliation that shaped his research. Uh, and um, what his work revealed, uh, in brief summary, is that President Franklin Roosevelt and his administration knew about the mass murder of the Jews uh, in time to have done something to rescue Jewish refugees or interrupt the mass murder. And yet the president and his administration uh, deliberately neglected uh, many opportunities to aid the Jews. Well, back in the 1930s, FDR was interested in maintaining good relations with Hitler in Germany. Although he wasn't perhaps a fan of Hitler's final solution, the annihilation of the Jews, their fate was not one of Roosevelt's concern. So how was this political posture different from or similar to 
let's say, Obama's strategy toward Iran when he was president, uh, uh, the country that was uh, intent on annihilating Israel, or even Trump's uh, attitude toward China and their human rights abuses. When uh, President Herbert Hoover, Roosevelt's predecessor, was leaving office in January 1933, uh, just as FDR was preparing to begin his first term, Jewish leaders approached the outgoing president and his incoming successor with an unusual request. They asked that Hoover and Roosevelt issue a joint statement um, expressing their criticism of uh, the Hitler regime's persecution of, uh, of German Jewry. Now, Hitler had just taken office, but immediately upon ascending to power, the new Nazi regime began oppressing the Jews. So the idea behind this joint statement would have been um, an expression of moral outrage, not necessarily with any political or diplomatic consequences, but simply a statement by two important world leaders that what Hitler was doing to the Jews was wrong. Um, Outgoing President Hoover agreed to the request, but President Roosevelt turned it down because from day one, Roosevelt's attitude towards Nazi Germany was that they were essentially a country like any other with whom the United States should pursue cordial, even friendly, sometimes friendly uh, trade relations, diplomatic relations. So, um, and it should be noted that the concept of the United States government uh, speaking out about human rights abuses in other countries was by no means unprecedented. It wasn't as if Jewish leaders were asking Roosevelt and Hoover to do something that no American president had ever done before. Uh, in the late 1800s, uh, a number of presidents had spoken out about the persecution of Jews in countries such as Romania and Russia. Uh, and in fact, in 1911, the U.S. government canceled a trade agreement with the government of Russia, Tsarist Russia, in order mm-hmm. to uh, protest the Tsar's pol- uh, anti-Jewish policies. So there was ample precedent for the idea of Roosevelt at least making a statement at some point um, expressing his disapproval. And Amer- keep in mind, American Jewish organizations at that time it came to Roosevelt in the 1930s with very modest requests, very, very limited requests. They didn't ask for America to break off relations with Nazi Germany. Um, they didn't even ask at first for the American government to stop trading with Germany. Um, all they were hoping in those early years was that the president would say a few words uh, about what was happening to the Jews in Germany. Uh, but Roosevelt was consistent uh, throughout his presidency and in this regard, in his attitude that the persecution of the Jews in Europe and Germany was none of America's business. Between 1933 and uh, the pogrom of Kristallnacht in the, at the end of 1938, uh, Roosevelt held Uh, more than 400 press conferences, and he never once, in all that time, raised the issue of the mistreatment of the Jews in Germany. And of course, those were the years during which the Hitler regime implemented uh, many important, uh, severe restrictions on Jews, expelling Jews from many professions, uh, barring Jews from public places. In 1935, at the Nuremberg Laws, stripping Jews of their citizenship and so on. And there was also sporadic violence. Um, 
Yet the Roosevelt administration's attitude was that America should say nothing, do nothing that might um, irritate Hitler because that would undermine American-German relations. Now, it's certainly true, as you say, that these kinds of considerations um, uh, arise with every president. And there's always a, a delicate balance for the president in um, expressing concern about uh, moral issues, human rights issues, and America's need for um, trade relations and diplomatic relations with countries around the world um, that we don't think very highly of, but nevertheless, they're in this world. and. Um, and, and and America would never consider cutting itself off from every regime that is undemocratic or abusive. Uh, yet um, we wouldn't have too many people to talk to. That's certainly true. Um, and yet, the history of American foreign relations shows that those countries need America too, and therefore there have been many instances in which the United States government uh, protested and sometimes imposed sanctions and so on on countries that were persecuting their own citizens. The, the struggle over Soviet Jewry in the 60s, 70s, and 80s certainly illustrates that because the Soviet Jewry protest movement, um, with the help of its supporters in Congress, um, forced, uh, forced U.S. administration, the Nixon administration, to change its policy toward the Soviet Union because of, of uh, the Jewish emigration issue, and they were successful in that. So. Uh, these are considerations that every president um, has to weigh. But in the case of Roosevelt, um, two comments. One is, because we remember Roosevelt as the president who valiantly led America uh, out of the Great Depression and to the brink of victory in World War II, only to die tragically in office before the day of victory, naturally we remember him um, as someone who was fighting Hitler. And, and therefore, sometimes it comes as a surprise to uh, people who read my, uh, my most recent book, The Jews Should Keep Quiet, um, that, that in fact, before America entered the war, the policy of the Roosevelt administration was to have friendly relations or at the minimum cordial relations with the Germans. So that's one. But the, the other thought I would like to share is that it, Roosevelt could have gone much further than he did. I mean, for example, uh, a verbal protest against Hitler in the early years um, would not have resulted in some uh, a great uh, disadvantage to the United States in terms of trade because the Germans desperately needed to trade with the Americans. And and so I said, I think part of the what's disturbing as we look through the historical record is that the Roosevelt administration not only was completely silent with regard to the plight of the Jews in Germany in the 30s, but in some cases, it went out of its way to actually help the Germans, for example, in the matter of trade. I describe in, in the book how uh, the, uh, the Treasury Department permitted the Germans to, um, to mislabel the goods that they exported to the United States in order to avoid the grassroots boycott movement that American Jews and others um, had undertaken in the 1930s. It was a nationwide boycott of German goods. And the way that the Roosevelt administration helped the Germans get around the boycott was by allowing them to stamp their goods with a label that instead of saying made in Germany, would say made in, and then they'd have the name of some city in Germany or some province 
something that the average American consumer would not necessarily recognize as being German. Um, the, this sort of ruse uh, went on for some time until it was discovered by the boycott activists and they threatened to sue the federal government and, and blow the whole thing wide open in the press. And at that point, the Roosevelt administration backed down and, and, and quietly um, stopped a lot, helping the Germans avoid the boycott. You also illustrate an, another important and very disturbing story that uh, by the 1940s, when Jews were desperate to flee for their lives, American ships were bringing supplies to their European allies and traveling back to the States empty. Why didn't they bring back refugees just to save their lives? So now we're speaking of the period of the war and also the period of the mass murder of the Jews. Now, let's keep in mind yes. that the U.S. government and its allies became aware of the Germans' uh, annihilation of German uh, of European Jewry um, during early and mid 1942. And by the end of 1942, the Allies had publicly verified that what they call the systematic extermination of millions of Jews was underway. So. The shipping question um, concerns a period when the U.S. government had already publicly confirmed that what we call the Holocaust was already underway. Jewish organizations uh, put forward a number of proposals to the Roosevelt administration, both to the president himself and to the State Department and presidential advisors. Proposals to directly aid the Jews in Europe or to help them escape or to give them haven. Among the proposals uh, was the idea of bringing refugees, Jewish refugees, to the United States, at least temporarily. And what the Jewish uh, officials were told when they raised this idea was that there were no ships available to bring refugees. After all, America was in the middle of a war, and you can't expect the United States government to divert uh, ships needed for war for non-military purposes. And that was the kind of response from the Roosevelt administration that American Jewish leaders found rather intimidating. Uh, and not surprisingly, I might add, because um, the prospect of the, of the president accusing American Jews of caring more about their fellow Jews than, um, than about the war effort would have been very painful and harmful to American Jewry. So when they were told this, there were no ships available, Jewish leaders such as Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, um, who was figures prominently in my book, took no for an answer. They felt that they couldn't pursue the issue much further. But what's fascinating about the shipping question, um, as you alluded, was the, the fact that ships were available. And they were available because the ships that, that brought uh, American troops and armaments to Europe, they were known as liberty ships. After um, soldiers uh, disembarked and the and the weapons were unloaded from the ships. The, these ships then returned to the United States empty. In fact, because they were empty, uh, there was a danger of them capsizing. So they had to be loaded down with ballast. Um, in this case, the ballast usually was rubble from uh, English cities that had been bombed by the Germans. Uh, the city of Bristol, in particular. So. Um, the, this rubble, these chunks of concrete were loaded onto the ships um, 
and they sailed back to America with large amounts of, of this debris. And there were some Jewish activists at the time who, who said out loud, if you're, if you're weighing down the ships with chunks of rock, why not just weigh them down with refugees who would serve the same purpose? Um, ironically, the, um, most of this rubble was taken to a spot just off the coast of the east side of Manhattan, um, where so much of it was dumped in the bay there that uh, ultimately in 1943, the mayor of New York, Mayor LaGuardia, decided it would be appropriate to honor the people of the city of Bristol, England, who had endured so much. And um, so they named that little spot uh, Bristol Bay. But there was too much rubble. It was filling up in the water. So they, they started using uh, those materials to... Uh, to aid in the construction of a highway that was just then being developed on the east side of Manhattan. Ironically, that's what we call, today is named the um, the FDR Drive. Yeah. yeah, that is ironic. And it's terrible to visualize people who are, were about to be murdered uh, being refused passage and instead trash being put on the ship. It's just a, a very striking image that you describe. Now, the personality of FDR is really interesting as he emerges in your writing. You quote many people who found him to be a cold and indifferent individual. Uh, you quote Truman as uh, calling him the coldest man I ever met. And that is so contrary to his reputation as this uh, warm, open-hearted man who cared for the poor and lifted the country out of depression, as he did, and created many social policies, including Social Security, which is still the one national safety net. H how do you understand that? Well, I would be careful about applying one broad label to any president. Um, typically, every president has a number of sides and... Um, Truman, knowing the president intimately, recognized that, that coldness, as he referred to it. Um, at the same time, um, Roosevelt was certainly a charmer. He was uh, well-known for his ability to uh, interact smoothly and warmly with, um, with anyone who came to him asking for anything. We sometimes call that glad-handing. This was typical mm -hmm. of his relationship with Rabbi Wise, who was the most prominent American Jewish leader of that era. Wise was welcome at the White House on occasion. And President Roosevelt knew how to uh, make Wise feel important. He would call him by his first name. In fact, it said he called him Stevie. He, uh, the president once included a line of Rabbi Wise's in one of his inaugural addresses. And that sort of thing um, inevitably makes the the person visiting the president feel special. And it, it's disarming because it's harder to confront a president about an issue such as uh, asking for US action to help the Jews. It's harder um, when the president seems like such a nice guy and he seems warm and welcoming and so forth. Um, Rabbi Wise was in a unique position. He was simultaneously the head of the American Jewish Congress, the World Jewish Congress, the American Zionist movement, uh, a rabbinical seminary in New York City, and a synagogue. So he had um, he was at the helm of leadership of an array of Jewish institutions and unquestionably had um, the most access to President Roosevelt of any Jewish leader. 
but Wise had his weaknesses too. And unfortunately, he had a weakness for flattery. And um, FDR knew how to stroke him so that um, he could, the president could tell Rabbi Wise, yes, yes, I'll look into that. Or sure, we'll do something about that. But then nothing would happen. And if Wise would come back six months later and and say, um, hey, whatever happened with that request for those refugees, and the president could say, I don't know, maybe it got, must wonder if it got bottled up by those State Department fellas. I'll look into it. Um, <laughs> obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. Uh, but that was the essence of the way their relationship worked. Now, Rabbi Wise was, along with almost all American Jews, um, uh, fervently supportive of President Roosevelt, of his New Deal policies, um, the social welfare policies to which you just alluded, and um, and a strong support of the Democratic Party. Uh, and that meant that Wise um, was in good standing with the Jewish community in the sense that he was in line with how he perceived most American Jews' view of Roosevelt. We know today that something in the range of 85 to 90 percent of American Jews voted for FDR uh, each, each of the four times that he ran for president. Now, average American Jews, though, knew only what they read in the newspapers. They didn't have access to what was going on in the White House. And so their perception of Roosevelt was not a perception, was not of a a president who was abandoning the Jews. They would have been shocked and were shocked when they started to hear little hints of that. But it was Rabbi Wise um, who knew from firsthand experience that the president was unresponsive to please his pleas and others' pleas for uh, concrete action to help the Jews. Um, and so um, what I argue in, in, in the book, The Jews Should Keep Quiet, is that Wise had a responsibility to tell uh, the American Jewish community the truth, to, tell, to reveal what he knew, um, even though, of course, that would have undermined his relationship with the president. But when you're speaking about a, a period when, as Wise knew, millions of Jews were being murdered, um, Every single day, you know, that, that, that Jews were being murdered every single day throughout Europe. Um, it, it, it reached the point, I would say, that um, it was his obligation, a, mor- a moral obligation, we might say, um, to alert the Jewish community in the hope of mobilizing pressure against the Roosevelt administration. But because Wise's attitude toward the president was so fawning and friendly to the extreme, he could not imagine publicly challenging the president's uh, policies regarding Jewish refugees. So Wise continued to convey to the, to the broader community that w- the president was doing the best he could to help the Jews when, in fact, Rabbi Wise knew that that was not the case. In, in fact, the, uh, the Rabbi Stephen Wise you describe struck me as a great deal like the character played by uh, John Turturro in uh, the recent HBO series, uh, based on Philip Roth's The Plot Against America. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it. Yes. So that character was just dazzled by his proximity to power. He was enthralled to the president as well as being intimidated. He's presented as a, a, a fairly narcissistic individual who drank the president's Kool-Aid. But the real Rabbi Wise, the historical Rabbi Wise, whom you studied, he wasn't naive. He was quite experienced in dealing with politicians. Why was he, to our sorrow, so easily easily flattered and manipulated? I regard Rabbi Wise 
as more of a tragic figure than a villain. Um, I believe he honestly wanted to do whatever was possible to help his fellow Jews who were being persecuted in Europe. I have no doubt that he was genuinely heartbroken when he received news, and he received it, of course, earlier than the general public, news about um, the mass killings and other atrocities that the Germans were perpetrating. But in, in many ways, I, I, it seems Rabbi Wise was simply the wrong man uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, to begin with, he was not a well man. I mean, physically, he was um, afflicted by many, uh, a variety of, of ailments. Um, and he also was not a young man. He turned 70 during this period, the 1940s, at a time when the average life expectancy for an American male was 68. And in the correspondence that I read, Rabbi Wise's private correspondence with other Jewish leaders, there are many instances in which he was unable to attend some important meeting with a government official or an important conference because um, he had to undergo one medical treatment or another. The obvious um, step would have been for Wise to share power with um, with younger, more able Jewish leaders, uh, but he was completely unwilling to step aside in any way. Um, he believed that he was the the best suited um, to to serve at the top of the Jewish leadership, and you know his entire his entire life was wrapped around the idea that he was the preeminent spokesman for American Jews, um, that he had you know, access to the president and that he knew best. So when in 1943, 1944, um, young Jewish activists began organizing um, independently of Rabbi Wise, staging demonstrations and, and lobbying in Congress uh, without his approval, he was infuriated because he felt like um, they had no right to to challenge his leadership. And, as, and ultimately, in, in assessing Rabbi Wise, I come to the conclusion that um, he had much more influence with the president than he was willing to exercise, um, that his cautious approach was a complete misreading of the political situation, and that had he uh, conveyed um, more frequently and more urgently to the president and especially to leaders of the Democratic Party, that American Jewish voters might change their minds about Roosevelt because of his abandonment of the Jews, um, it's likely, in my view, that the administration would have done something more to help the Jewish refugees, especially when there were, there were so many different ways in which the president, the administration could have helped the Jews in Europe or could have interrupted the mass murder without undermining the war effort or um, or risking the president's uh, political standing. Well, there is also more in the context uh, in which uh, Rabbi Wise lived. Uh, American Jews were pretty insecure in the 1930s and 40s, I imagine. Um, they were mostly immigrants in a country where there was vocal sympathy for fascism and anti-Semitism. The, uh, the infamous fa Father Coughlin on the radio Schools had quotas, uh, neighborhoods were restricted, there were hotels and clubs and job ads that excluded Jews specifically. So um, do, do you think that was part of Rabbi Wise's reality? 
The 1930s were a scary time for American Jews, and they and most American Jews did not feel entirely secure with their place in American society. As you know, anti-Semitism um, was very widespread. Uh, Professor Wyman counted more than 100 anti-Semitic organizations that were active around the country during that period. There was also strong opposition to immigration, uh, just aside from uh, the, big, the bigotry, the anti-Semitism, there was a, a very, very strong opposition in the, in the 1930s among the American public to the idea of allowing any foreigners into the country. Uh, but I make an important distinction between leaders such as Rabbi Wise and the masses of American Jews. Um, it was Rabbi Wise's responsibility to judge the situation and to arrive at a sober assessment of how far American Jews could go without igniting an anti-Semitic backlash. This fear of a backlash is something which emerges again and again in the documents, in Rabbi Wise's private correspondence. The idea that American Jews were to be too forthright um, and do the kinds of things that, that some other American uh, ethnic groups did, like staging public protests, marching to the White House, taking out full-page ads in the newspapers. Those sort of things, Wise was convinced, would result in a massive anti-Semitism. At one point, he suggested it could even lead to pogroms against American Jews. But what we know from what actually happened is that in 1943, uh, activists known as the Berkson Group did organize a march together with an Orthodox rescue group called the Vad HaTzalah, a march of over 400 rabbis to the White House to plead for the rescue of American Jews. This was the first um, time that uh, American Jews had protested uh, at the White House. In fact, it was the only such protest during the Holocaust years. Um, and it did not cause any pogroms. Uh, it, similarly, the Bergson Group placed large ads in the newspapers, more than 200 full-page ads in leading American newspapers during the 1940s. The reason they had to place these ads calling for rescue of the Jews is because many of the major news media outlets were burying the news of the mass murder in their back pages or ignoring it altogether. So in order to get the story out there and to push the idea of rescue, the Bergson Group sponsored these um, these very uh, striking ads in the newspapers. And again, the ads did not result in an anti-Semitic backlash. So while one can certainly understand the fears that bedeviled Rabbi Wise, um, a Jewish leader also in, in that situation has a responsibility to look at the situation on the ground, look at the facts on the ground. And once, once it was obvious that marching to the White House or placing ads in the newspapers would not cause pogroms or an anti-Semitic backlash of any note, then it would be time to reassess the, the cautious approach of the established Jewish leaders. But sadly, Rabbi Wise never reassessed his approach. He never changed his tactics. He never, he couldn't think outside the box. This is a, an important point I make in the book that in unusual situations, Jewish leaders need to think of unusual and creative ways to address uh, policy issues. And Rabbi Wise was completely unable to do that. Um, the tactics he used of quietly going to, to the president or the secretary of state and pleading for a humanitarian gesture, that tactic 
that he used in 1934, he was still using in 1944. Um, it didn't work in 34, and it didn't work in 44. There was a rabbi who had a different approach. Uh, tell us about uh, Rabbi Abba Hillel Silver. Rabbi Silver, like Rabbi Wise, came from the Reform Movement. He and Wise were among the minority in the Reform rabbinates who were Zionists. And I, I, it should be noted that, uh, especially early in his career, Rabbi Wise did not mind taking controversial positions in which he held uh, you know, a, a, a strong point of view. He believed in Zionism, even though most Reform rabbis did not. So he and Silver began as colleagues and co-strugglers within the Reform movement, um, promoting the idea that uh, the time had come for the Jews to have their own sovereign state uh, in Palestine. Silver was um, quite a bit younger than Wise and, um, and politically more independent. He was not a Republican, um, but he was very close to the most important Republican U.S. Senator of that time, Robert Taft of Ohio, because Silver came from Cleveland. And that relationship was important because one of the things that Silver realized was that Wise's strategy of being friendly only with the Democrats um, undermined the ability of American Jews to have political clout. The whole, the very concept of effective lobbying in Washington requires a bipartisan approach, having relationships with um, figures in both parties. But because Wise was so deeply loyal to President Roosevelt and the Democrats, he had virtually no relationships with any Republicans in Congress. And that was a political handicap. Silver, on the other hand, um, built relations not only with Senator Taft, but other leading Republicans. And, um, and, and that put him at odds with Wise from early on. So now you see the contrast. Silver was more of an activist. Silver was younger and more dynamic. Silver had relationships with Republicans whom Wise despised. So um, they gradually came into, into sharp conflict. Now, Chaim Weitzman, the, the leader of the, of the Zionist movement, later the first president of Israel, desperately wanted to maintain unity in the American Zionist movement. And so in 1943, he convinced Wise the time had come to allow Silver a major leadership position. In those days, the, the, the top American Zionist groups were part of a coalition known as the American Zionist Emergency Council, the AZEC. And uh, for a brief time, Wise actually allowed Silver to co-chair this American Zionist alliance. Uh, but very soon, Wise came to regret that, uh, and he and Silver clashed uh, repeatedly. The, of course, the bigger picture here is that while Wise and Silver were fighting it out for the leadership of American Zionism, they were expending a lot of time and energy and political resources um, on a battle that was not directly connected to the more urgent question of rescuing Jews who were being um, you know, gassed in Auschwitz um, at its peak at 15,000 daily. So in a sense, they were, they were to a certain extent fiddling while Rome was burning. Yeah, we see that a lot in politics, don't we? Um, now, so you have an FDR who disappointed the American Jewish community, both by not admitting refugees by not bombing death camps or railroads that were taking victims to be murdered, 
And he continued to disappoint after the war with regard to the establishment of Israel. How did Rabbi Wise deal with it? During the 1930s, Rabbi Wise, um, uh, on many occasions, approached President Roosevelt about the need for U.S. support uh, to bring about the creation of a Jewish state. And his Wise's request um, usually involved asking Roosevelt to pressure the British to allow more Jewish immigration um, or to you know, facilitate the establishment of a Jewish state in various ways. And uh, Roosevelt was, in general, um, lukewarm, let's say, to the whole idea. Um, he was more, much more concerned with the possibility that American support for Zionism would ignite a violent opposition in the Arab world. This is, of course, a familiar uh, theme in American foreign policy. So what Roosevelt would do is he would he would give Wise a kind of a like a boilerplate statement of expressing sympathy for the efforts of the Jews to up to 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 rebuild their homeland, um, but he would stop short of actually calling for a Jewish state. And the British appreciated that because the British, as you know, um, were uh, quite opposed to the idea of establishing a Jewish state. Um, and uh, the and the, the position of the American president mattered very much to them, especially as war, as the likelihood of war increased in the late 1930s, the British were very anxious to have America on their side. And that's why, by the way, uh, Wise was able on one occasion, on one lone occasion, to actually um, succeed in getting the president to pressure the British. And this happened in 1936 uh, when the British were first intending to issue a, the, what later became known as the White Paper, which stopped almost all Jewish immigration to Palestine. The British were, in fact, intending to issue that uh, in 1936, not as they eventually did in 1939. And Wise, after catching wind of, of England's plan, went to the president, Roosevelt, and asked him uh, if he would intervene with the British. This happened in the fall of 1936. It was about less than two months before the presidential election. Roosevelt could not be entirely sure uh, of what his level of Jewish support would be in that election. What I mean is, um, although he had received strong Jewish support in 1932, he, he, the polling in those days was not sophisticated enough for him to be sure that American Jews were going to support him in such large numbers again. So Roosevelt calculated that it would be a useful gesture if he would um, if he would intervene and get the British to back off. And he did. The British government decided at that point that it wasn't worth a clash with the president. So when he quietly asked them to put off this intended white paper, they did it. And as a result, tens of thousands of Jews were able to enter Palestine in the, in the next several years before the white paper was, established, was uh, implemented. But that whole episode is really the exception that proves the rule, because it was the only time uh, during this entire period from 1933 to 1945, where FDR uh, act, did something concrete in response to a request from Rabbi Wise. But as to the question of, of um, Roosevelt's position on Zionism, he never did. Um, he never did fully embrace the Zionist cause. Um, in late 1944, and this is just a few months before President Roosevelt passed away, late 1944, 
as that year's election was approaching, Wise tried desperately to get the president to issue a pro-Zionist statement, especially because the Republican presidential nominee, uh, Governor Thomas Dewey of New York, had come out strongly in favor of a Jewish state and of rescuing Jewish refugees. Um, Wise had to really pull teeth to get anything out of Roosevelt. And the draft that Wise provided to the White House of the statement that he wanted um, was watered down again and again by the president himself um, before it was finally issued. So ultimately, um, Roosevelt never, he never came out um, fully in support of creating a Jewish state. And years later, some former White House advisors um, looking back said that they did, that if, if, if Roosevelt had lived, they did not believe he ever would have supported creating a Jewish state um, as his successor, Harry Truman, ultimately did. So with the policy of Japanese internment in the U.S., and the harsh immigration policy against people who were clearly at indisputable risk of being murdered, plus his refusal to keep his promises about support for Zionism, do you believe that FDR was simply a bigot, a racist? Well, let's start with the question of the Japanese internment, because um, that episode in American history um, turned out to have a surprising connection to the to the question of America's policy toward Jews during the Holocaust. I had not expected this when I began researching this subject many years ago. But I had always wondered um, about the background to Roosevelt's decision, because after all, he was known as a, a man of, of liberal uh, sensibilities. Um, he, of course, had portrayed himself as the champion of the forgotten man. And in general, he was perceived by the American public as a progressive and a humanitarian. And yet, as we know, he he ordered the mass detention of over 120,000 uh, Japanese Americans, um, even though there had not been a single case uncovered, which a Japanese American had spied for Japan during the war. So they were imprisoned based on a fear and a suspicion that they might be disloyal, even though there was no evidence of it. Um, and some years ago, I read a, a book called By Order of the President by an American historian named Greg Robinson, who teaches in Montreal. And he explored this precise question. Uh, how is it that, that a liberal, Franklin Roosevelt, could have done something um, so contrary to, to the basic principles of civil liberties uh, and equality? And he ultimately found the answer by looking at a series of newspaper articles that Roosevelt had written in the 1920s. Now, just to set the context, this was after Roosevelt had run unsuccessfully as the vice presidential nominee in 1920, and just before he was elected governor of New York in 1928. In the mid-20s, he was living in Georgia, um, attempting to recuperate from polio, and he was a columnist for a local newspaper there in Macon, Georgia. Since immigration, especially uh, Asian immigration, were very hot subjects um, in those days, he wrote a number of columns in the newspapers about um, his view of that subject. And he, um, he, he referred to Asians in what can only be described as bru brutally racist terms. He said um, that, that 
whites and orientals, as he called them, whites and orientals should never intermarry, that there should be no mixing of blood between Caucasians and orientals, that um, they could not, that Asians could not be fully trusted. His view uh, in a nutshell was that there was something biologically different about Asians that made them uh, untrustworthy. Uh, and that ultimately was why he was so receptive to this idea that his advisors proposed in 1942 to, uh, to undertake the mass detention of all of these Asian Americans, because he believed that there was something in them that would ultimately lead to them potentially being disloyal, even though there was no evidence of it. What fascinated me most about reading this was that a lot of the comments that Roosevelt made in these articles about Asians about their untrustworthiness, about um, what we call their dual loyalties and so forth, struck me as very similar to a number of comments that I knew Roosevelt had made privately about Jews. Now, some of the comments to which I'm about to allude uh, were discovered in my research. Many of them were found in the research of early, earlier historians, but um, until, until now, nobody had put them together to suggest that these isolated comments that Roosevelt made about Jews had any bearing on his policy, much less any connection to the internment of the Japanese. But I noticed a parallel. I noticed that when Roosevelt spoke privately about Jews, and when I say spoke privately, what I mean is he didn't uh, keep a diary and he didn't record his Oval Office conversations like um, like Richard Nixon did, for example. Um, but he, in general, Roosevelt did not commit his private thoughts to writing, but he had uh, many private conversations with allies of his, friends of his, in which the other side wrote down, you know, kept a record of what they said. Some of these conversations were with Rabbi Wise, some were with um, uh, others like Winston Churchill or congressional allies of the presidents. And when the subject of the Jews came up, um, there was a running theme, and that was that Roosevelt feared that if there were too many Jews in any particular profession or any particular part of society, that they could not be trusted, that they would be, um, ultimately, they were not really fully loyal. They were loyal only to their fellow Jews and that they would try to control or dominate um, wherever they were. And so um, in a number of comments, for example, he recommended uh, dispersing Jews around the country, not allowing them to to, to, to live in one area in any great numbers um, because they would try to you know, take things over. He boasted about how when he was on the board of governors at Harvard University, he helped implement a quota on the admission of Jewish students because he didn't want too many Jews on campus. Um, and in other comments, he talked about not allowing too many Jews into various professions. The issue of dispersal, though, is particularly interesting because the phrase he used was, we have to spread them out thin around the country. And um, remarkably, he said this, on one occasion on which he said this was at a White House luncheon um, in a private conversation with Winston Churchill in 1943. Just a year later, I found that at a press conference Roosevelt gave, in which a reporter asked him, what is gonna happen to these Japanese Americans when the war ends and, and the detention camps are closed down? And Roosevelt began talking about spreading them thin around the country and the language that he used about spreading the Japanese out thin was almost identical um, to that he used when referring to the Jews. Now, if a president were to was found to have made you know one, you know one um, offhand comment about Jews, 
you can't, as a historian, you can't build any case on that. You can't derive from that any conclusion about his overall attitudes. But what happens when you find five or 10, or in the case of Roosevelt, 15 separate derogatory comments about Jews made over a period of many years in the 30s and 40s, comments made to friendly people, comments that were not intended for publication. They were made to friends of his who had no intention of publicizing them. Um, then you have to conclude that, that these numerous remarks reflect an attitude. And when that attitude mirrors that of how he looked at and treated another ethnic minority, well, then you begin to realize that there's an important connection. And that's the connection that I described in detail in The Jews Should Keep Quiet. Because my conclusion is that ultimately the reason that Roosevelt would not allow the immigration quotas to be filled and the reason that he would not, they would not allow ships that were empty to carry Jewish refugees. Um, and, and the reason they would not take any actions in Europe to interrupt the mass murder all ultimately trace back to an attitude that Roosevelt did not want to have too many Jews in America. He, his vision of America was one that would be overwhelmingly white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and there was not room there for any significant number of Jews, especially uh, Jewish refugees coming from other countries with their foreign mannerisms and, and foreign beliefs, which he believed um, would be very hard to get them to discard. And this idea of dispersing them around the country um, was, he said, in order to try to um, hasten their Americanization so they would stop being so different. But ultimately, he felt that there was something in Jews, like there was something in Japanese that was different um, and that therefore ultimately made them undesirable in any large numbers or in any one city or in any one profession or one college campus. With your expertise and perspective on Holocaust history and the U.S. response, how do you understand the troubling growth of anti-Semitism and anti-Israel politics in today's America? from neo-Nazis marching in Charlottesville to anti-Zionism on college campuses to uh, Barry Weiss, a New York Times columnist, being hounded out of her job. There's no doubt that there is a lot of anti-Semitism in the United States currently. The question that's very hard to measure is how much is there and how much more is there than in previous years. I say that because the, the ways that we have for measuring anti-Semitism um, are far from exact. For example, you can take a public opinion poll. You could ask people um, whether they agree that Jews are greedy um, or Jews are, um, are untrustworthy. And, uh, and it's hard to know if the people answering the question are telling the truth. Now, when these polls were taken in the 1930s, um, they showed alarming numbers of Americans who expressed prejudice against Jews. In those days, um, prejudice was not regarded with um, the same uh, general societal disapproval that it is today. So I think people were a little more frank in answering those polls. Uh, but probably even those days, there were some people who perceived that, um, that to admit to bigotry was not acceptable in American society. And today, it is certainly um, completely unacceptable. So you, you can't really rely on those kinds of polls. In terms of measuring anti-Semitic incidents, 
The problem there is that agencies which try to uh, calculate the number of instances of anti-Semitism, let's say like the Anti-Defamation League, they're relying to a large extent on, on incidents that are reported, reported to them or reported publicly. But again, there are a lot of unreported instances. Um, and you have um, episodes where it appears there's anti-Semitism, and then later turns out it was not. Let's say, for example, that wave of bomb threats against American Jewish institutions in 2017, and then it later turned out to be the work of a mentally unbalanced uh, teenager in his, in a, sitting in a basement in Israel, or the or the, the mass um, toppling of Jewish gravestones near St. Louis that year, and it turned out to have been a product of a, a drunken rampage, not anti-Semitism. So, so much of what we uh, base our perception today of there being a lot of anti-Semitism comes from what we see and hear in the public arena. And it does feel, it feels to me, as it feels to most American Jews, like things are worse Um that anti-Semitism is more widespread. And yet at the same time, it's also true that in general, society disapproves of anti-Semitism um, in a, much, much more seriously uh, than it ever has. Um, so in a way, what I'm really saying is that uh, anti-Semitism today is the same kind of paradox it's always been. There's a lot of it out there. You kind of know it when you see it. Um, sometimes it comes from the right and sometimes it comes from the left. Sometimes it, it comes from unexpected places. Sometimes it, it's the result of ignorance. Sometimes it's malice. Um, the process, I think, of making any society uh, more enlightened and progressive and tolerant is a very gradual process. It involves education and interaction and a president who sets a tone and other public figures who set a tone for what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. But it, it won't happen overnight. It has not happened. Um, but overall, I would say American society is far more tolerant, far more accepting, not only of Jews, but of all, of all races, um, than it was in the past. Um, and you know, that can be measured through what we see in the popular culture, uh, and elsewhere. And that's important. So I do feel that in, in broad strokes, society has made a great deal of progress. Um, um, and yet, and yet bigotry remains a problem. Anti-Semitism remains a problem. For for Jewish leaders, though, I think we have a, there's a certain parallel here. Um, Jewish leaders who base their decisions on fear of arousing anti-Semitism ultimately are painting themselves into the same kind of corner that Rabbi Wise did in the 1940s, which is of um, assuming the worst and um, and expecting that there could be uh, pogroms when, in fact. The majority of Americans then and now um, are not bigots. They're not anti-Semites. Um, and as much as we're concerned today about the rise of anti-Semitism, I don't think anybody could uh, credibly argue that American Jews today um, would be in danger of, a, of an anti-Semitic backlash of pogroms were they to um, forcefully protest some issue of their concern. And the proof, of course, is that American Jews do forcefully protest. Um, one, one could say that, um, that the, the generation that followed Rabbi Wise really learned from many of his mistakes because the Soviet Jewry movement um, and the, the pro-Israel activism that got underway, especially beginning in the 70s, um, showed that the next generation was determined in many ways not to repeat 
um, the mistake of keeping quiet. The title of the book, The Jews Should Keep Quiet, is a, a close paraphrase of what Roosevelt would admonish Rabbi Wise. He, would, he wanted Rabbi Wise to keep quiet, and he wanted Wise, in turn, to pressure Jewish activists to keep quiet. And, but that whole approach of keeping quiet um, ultimately is discredited by historical events. We see that, that Jewish leaders who kept quiet in the 40s ultimately failed to exercise influence um, to persuade leaders like Roosevelt to do something for the Jews. And those who spoke out, like the Bergson Group and others, had an impact. And similarly today, um, quiet diplomacy uh, ultimately does not have the, the power of public protest, although quiet diplomacy combined with public protest often can have a positive result. Raphael, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, before I let you go, please tell us what you're working on now. My next book is a biography of the late Rabbi Herschel Schachter. He was the American army chaplain um, who was present at the liberation of Buchenwald and then stayed in Buchenwald for several months after that to assist the, the survivors. Um, it's a remarkable story because it's not just a story of one man, but it, it, it reveals a lot about how the Holocaust uh, impacted American Jews in the years to follow. Rabbi Schachter went on to become the first Orthodox rabbi to be head of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He was also an early leader in the Soviet Jewry protest movement and an important figure in the American Orthodox world, including in the early uh, outreach movement by Orthodox Jews in the U.S. So he's somebody whose life was transformed by the Holocaust. And, uh, and through the prism of Rabbi Schachter's life, I explore um, a, a number of important uh, trends, developments, and episodes in the American Jewish community from the end of the war uh, until the 1980s. Uh, the book is called The Rabbi of Buchenwald, The Life and Times of Rabbi Herschel Schachter. And it will be published by Yeshiva University Press next year. Well, it sounds really interesting, and I'll look forward to reading it when it comes out. Thank you, Raphael, for your important work and for being on the show today. Thanks very much. N nice speaking with you. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. Take care. Stay safe. Bye-bye.